Welcome to The Life Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us for another hope-filled message. We pray that you're encouraged by this powerful word from our Sunday service. Acts chapter 8, I want to speak into uh, the culture of, this is my third or fourth time here, and I've sort of figured out uh, what makes the place tick, and I want to to put some language around uh, the culture of what we're trying to do here at Life um, in Adelaide. I want to start with a true story from the 80s. It'll serve as our primary imagery for the entire sermon, um, and then then we'll get into Acts chapter 8. So I'm American. Americans love Australian culture. We love it, primarily because of a guy named Crocodile Dundee. I love that. We love that. We love it. And this is back in the 80s, and American tourists came to Australia. Now, when Americans come to Australia for the first time, they always want to see one thing, the outback, because Crocodile Dundee lives there. I try to tell them, seriously, bro, you don't want to see the outback. There's nothing there. Fly to Mount Isa, drive five minutes out of town. That is it. 3,000 miles of that. But they don't listen. They always want to come see the outback because that's where Crocodile Dundee lives. And there's a couple things that mesmerize Americans. One is the sheer size of property. We don't, we don't have any file folder. But Bill Gates just became the largest private property owner in the history of America. He bought a million acres for himself. And Americans are like, man, million acres for yourself. Flip, right? Australians are like, backyard, right? That's <laughs> the difference, right? And so my, my pastor's an old cattleman. He, um, he, he, when he was a young man, he ran a cattle property that was 70 miles long by 30 miles wide, right? Now, to an American... That's the state of Connecticut, okay? That is enormous, right? And so the American couldn't get his head around one thing. How do you keep the cows from running away? It's huge. How do you, and you, and you can't, and he asked the Australian farmer, where's all your fences? Like, where's all it? And the farmer said, what? He said, you can't fence up a property this size. It would take, it's too expensive. It'd take a congressional act to build your wall, you know? He said, what you do to keep the cows running away is you have a surveyor come in and they dig strategic water sources. And if you create predictable water sources, the cows won't vary too far from the water source or they'll die. And the Australian farmer said to the American tourist, mate, mate, if you got the right wells, you don't need all those fences. Which leads me to Jesus. Jesus comes into the world in the most fence-based paradigm of ministry maybe ever. 613 rules. Who's in? Who's out? Who's right? Who's wrong? Who's clean? Who's unclean? Jesus is like, that day is over. Let's change it to two fence posts. Love God and treat others as you would want to be treated. Be people who fulfill scripture instead of being right about one verse you can find. That Christianity is not a group of people who believe in Jesus. Demons believe in Jesus. Christianity is a group of people who are intentionally trying to see the world how Jesus saw it, to see God how Jesus saw God and to apply scripture how Jesus applied scripture. And the way Jesus applied scripture was to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And instead of being right about one verse, we can fulfill the whole lot of it. Which leads me to Acts. Acts is a group of people who took Jesus seriously. And they started fulfilling scripture instead of being right about one verse that disqualifies people. And amazing things start happening. And then they get persecuted for it, and then they overcome it, and then, then they did more amazing things, and they did, then they got persecuted, then they did more amazing things. This is the entire book of Acts in 10 seconds. Then they got persecuted, then they did more amazing things, and then they got persecuted, then they did more. And then their friend named Stephen gets murdered. And when folks start getting murdered, even the most ardent follower of Jesus is like, we're taking our show on the road, bro. 
until y'all chill out, we're going to Samaria. And then amazing things start happening. And then perhaps one of the craziest stories in the whole book of Acts happens. It's a weird encounter between Philip, one of, one of the followers of Jesus, and an Ethiopian eunuch. And, and the, the, basically the way it goes is, is, it, is there's this Ethiopian eunuch who rides a horse from Ethiopia to Jerusalem. The, the whole story starts weird. First of all, why address him as an Ethiopian eunuch? Why not the Ethiopian guy or Bill the Ethiopian? No. He's described as missing part of his anatomy, which is strange, isn't it? Five times. Ethiopian. This Ethiopian eunuch rides a horse from Ethiopia to Jerusalem. According to Google Maps, that's 3,853 kilometers. To put that in Australian terms, that's riding a horse from Melbourne to Mount Isa, turning right and going to Townsville. He rode a horse that far, which might explain why he's a eunuch. <laughs> and he has this, it, the whole story's sort of weird. It, this Ethiopian eunuch rides a horse for 3,853 kilometers, clutching the scroll of a prophet named Isaiah, who he admits he can't even understand what he's reading, and he's worshiping in a place that he doesn't speak the language. That's strange. Why would you, drive, why would you ride 3,853 kilometers? Was there, Mount Sinai's halfway? There's sort of a holy sort of thing around that. No, this guy's all the way in Jerusalem, clutching the scroll of a prophet he can't possibly understand in a place with a language he doesn't understand. And he has an encounter with a Jesus expert. And it's so sort of odd. And then there's this critical moment where Philip explains the way Jesus saw the world, the way Jesus saw God, and the way Jesus applied scripture and this guy is in. The only problem is he doesn't know if he's allowed. So an outsider asks a Jesus expert, I love the way Jesus sees the world, the way Jesus sees God, and the way Jesus applies scripture. This would make the world a better place. I'm in, unless you can think of a reason I can't be. I don't know the rules. And here's the thing. Hopefully on a regular basis, all of us face questions where people who feel on the outside of God are wondering, what can I do to be on the inside? And they're asking it. They don't know how to, but they're thinking, can you think of any reason why I can't be a part of what God is doing in Christ? This story is not just about these people. It's about all of us. And this thing hits a critical moment in Acts 8, 35. Let me show it to you. Bring that first slide up for me. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with that scripture, he told the good news about Jesus. In other words, the way Jesus saw the world, God, and, and applied scripture. And, and as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, well, look, here's some water. Is there anything preventing me from being baptized? In other words, can I be a part, or can you think of a reason I can't? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch. And so he baptized him. This story has so many questions. It's weird. Like, I, I, if I have questions, you have questions, so I'm gonna let you in on the questions I ask, and then maybe they're the same question you ask. Like, next slide. Like, is, is there too much information in this passage? Do we really need to know this guy's a eunuch? If you're the eunuch, do you want the whole world knowing you're a eunuch? I can picture the eunuch right now confronting Luke. Like, really, bro, you putting that in the Bible? You know Willard can't just read over that. He's gonna make a point. Why do we need to know he's a eunuch? Why do we need to know he's a foreigner? Why is he all the way coming to Jerusalem on a horse? Why is he clutching the scroll of a prophet named Isaiah who he can't possibly understand? And the, the fourth question, where all the tension in the story rides is, is there any reason he can't be baptized? He's asking the Jesus expert, is there any reason I can't be a part? And the problem is, is that there was. 
And we're gonna talk about that in a second because what this passage is gonna force us to wrestle with today is this. Are we gonna be a fence-based place or are we gonna be a well-based place? Are we gonna be fence-based thinkers or are we gonna be well-based thinkers? Because all the tension in the story is, can you think of a reason I can't be baptized? And here's the problem. There was. There was a rule. The problem is it's in the Bible. It's in Deuteronomy 23. Verse one, and Philip would have known it well. This is what it says, if you could bring that up. No one who's been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter into the assembly of the Lord. God doesn't accept eunuchs. It's in the Bible. We have a verse for this. And while Moses was on a roll with fence making, he keeps going. And no one born of a forbidden marriage or any of their descendants can enter the assembly of the Lord, not even 10 generations from now. And no Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants can enter the assembly of the Lord, not even 10 generations from now. No eunuchs, no foreigners, and nobody born of suspicious circumstances. And Jesus' presence himself confronts this. If you check Jesus' genealogy, he's 128th Moabite. And there were certain questions regarding the circumstances around his birth, right? And so there's all these fences. There are more fences in Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, 2, and 3 than in Jesus' whole ministry. Love God and treat others as you would be treated. Philip has a choice. Do I want to be right about Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, and say, look, unfortunately, there's this rule, you're disqualified. Or do I want to do what Jesus taught me to do, which is to fulfill Scripture instead of being right about the one verse I can find and treat you as I would want to be treated? And thank goodness Philip chose the latter, which leads to this question. Why Isaiah? Out of all the scriptures, why is this foreigner eunuch so concerned with Isaiah? Well, on the same scroll he was reading from, we find this. This is Isaiah 56. Check this out. Let no foreigner who's bound to the Lord say the Lord will exclude me. And let no eunuch complain I'm only a dry tree. But this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them, I'll give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than the sons and daughters. If you don't hear anything else I say, I want you to hear me say this. The Bible is not a static record of God. The Bible is a dynamic, progressive, moving revelation of God leading to the final revelation of God in the risen Christ. Deuteronomy 23, no foreigners, no eunuchs. Isaiah 56, upon further review... Foreigners and eunuchs that want in, not only will God not exclude them, he will include them. Not only will he include them, he's not going to include them with an asterisk like subclass. He's going to give them a name better than the people who thought they were in in the first place. By Matthew 19, Jesus said some people are born eunuchs because of God. And by Acts chapter 8, there is this radical encounter where the rubber meets the road, where a foreigner eunuch is asking a Jesus expert, is there anything you can think of that excludes me? And Philip has a choice. He can either be right about Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, and tell the guy to go home, or he could be right about Isaiah 56 and say, well, if you want in, you're in. Or he could do something more profound than all of that and simply do unto others as you would have them do unto you and fulfill Scripture instead of be right about the one verse. Now, if you're a linear learner instead of a narrative learner, you're already a little lost. So... If you're a linear learner, I did this for you. Next slide. There are two characters in this story. There is an Ethiopian eunuch. He's a God-fearer. He's a truth seeker. He's thirsty. The problem is he would have been disqualified by one rule in Deuteronomy 23. You also have, next slide, you have Philip. Philip is one of the original 12 from a devoutly orthodox village called Bethsaida. He would have lived by all 613 fences until he met Jesus. 
And Jesus taught him to see the world a different way, to see God a different way, and to apply scripture a different way by fulfilling it instead of being right about one verse. And by the way, how did Jesus teach his followers to judge the merit of something? He said, you always judge the merit of something by the fruit it bears. And this story has incredible fruit to it. Next slide. Today, two-thirds of Ethiopia identify as Christ followers. Ethiopian Christians are indigenous. People don't tend to move to Ethiopia. The Ethiopian church today traces their origins back to this one eunuch. In other words, you never know. We're being brave enough to fulfill scripture instead of being right about that one verse has such far-reaching effects. Can you imagine if Philip would have said, unfortunately, there's this rule, you gotta go home. We'd be spending $10 billion today trying to evangelize Ethiopia when actually two-thirds of them are already Christ followers because one follower of Jesus chose to fulfill scripture instead of be right about that one verse, to be a well-based thinker instead of a fence-based thinker. Now, that is my best effort explaining what happened. I want to spend the rest of the time exploring what's happening in us right now because of what happened. I hate saying obvious things without language. To say obvious things without language is just a platitude. Like if I was to say, hey, at Life Church, we are well-based thinkers, not fence-based thinkers. That's obvious. I know the leaders here. They're well-based thinkers, not fence-based thinkers. It's obvious. And if I was to say that, no one's going to disagree with that. No one's going to go, no! We need to make it much harder to be a part. Nobody would do that. The problem is if we don't have language around what we're talking about, then we submit ourselves to each individual imagination because words don't matter. How we picture words working matters. And so it's not what we say, it's how we picture it working. It's possible to say something true, but it creates an untrue imagination of how it works. Like, let me give you an example, okay? I'm gonna say something true and it will create an untrue imagination, right? I'm gonna mess with your head. I'm gonna say something true and what you're thinking is gonna be not true, okay? Jesus is your, one day you will stand in front of Jesus and Jesus is your judge. True? Yes. The problem isn't the statement. The problem is the picture it creates. I've asked over a thousand people, when I say Jesus is your judge, what do you picture? Almost everybody says I picture a courtroom where Jesus is like deciding who's in, who's out, who's right, who's wrong, who's guilty, who's not guilty. My Sunday school teacher told me when I was seven that one day I'd stand in front of Jesus and he'd put my whole life on a big screen for everybody to look at. I was seven, right? First of all, first of all, how boring can you make heaven? 13.7 billion people have lived and died with an average lifespan of 50 years. That means the first 650 billion years of eternity is watching people's lives. How boring. Strap in, everybody. Take a restroom break. Next up, Methuselah, right? Like, come on. And you have to be mentally unhinged to want to be in relationship with someone who's keeping track of everything you do, who's going to shame you in public. Like, and we say, Jesus is the judge. You're going to stand in front of him one day. Okay, but the Hebrew word for judge is not a courtroom official. It's someone anointed by God to set you free. And you already knew that because there's a whole book in the Bible called the book of judges. Yeah, they're not courtroom officials. They're people anointed by God to set us free. In Psalm 86, it says, God is the judge of the orphan. Judging orphans. Why are we judging orphans? Unless judgment means something. To, so if we say, hey, one day you're gonna stand in front of God, he'll judge you. Now come on, press into Jesus. Ain't nobody wanna be in court. 
No mentally healthy person wants to be in court. But what if we said, hey, press into the one who's finally and fully anointed by God to set us free from everything holding us back. So what we say is less important than the picture we create. So when I say, I want us to be a well-based place, not a fence-based place, we need some language around that. So let's think of it a few different ways. First slide, next slide. Jesus doesn't ask, are you worthy? Jesus always asks, are you thirsty? A fence-based place obsesses with who is worthy, who keeps the rules. A well-based place obsesses on who is thirsty. One way of thinking of it is who, who is worth it. Another way of thinking of it is who wants it. Jesus had this profound way of seeing God that if somebody actually wanted everything God had for them, that you can trust God to do all the convicting and all the changing in someone's life. And our job is simply to facilitate and celebrate that person's next yes. A well-based place says, are you thirsty? A fence-based place says, are you worthy? Let's say it this way. A fence-based place says, we're gonna send less. A well-based place says, we're gonna love more. And by loving more, we'll automatically Sin less. Look, sinning less is a really good idea. The less we engage in behavior that destroys us, yes. But to fight sin by forbidding sin is like fighting a fire with a spark gun. You, you have to actually replace it with something. Right? A fence-based place says who is worthy. A well-based place says who is thirsty. A fence-based place says we're gonna sin less. A well-based place says we're gonna love more. A fence-based place says everything has to be fixed. A well-based place says nothing has to be hidden. That's two different things. A fence-based place says, bring us your brokenness and we'll show you our expertise on what is right and wrong and it'll fix your life. It's a really old story. It was told by a talking snake in the book of Genesis that you can fix your life by mastering right and wrong. No, you cannot because there's a lot of things that aren't wrong, but they're not wise. A fence-based place says, everything has to be fixed for you to belong. A well-based place says, come just as you are and nothing has to be hidden. A well-based place has this way of seeing God that says, if you come just as you are and, not, and everything's brought into the light, God can do all the convicting and all the changing and our job is to facilitate and celebrate your next yes let's say it this way a fence-based place says who is worthy a well-based place says who is thirsty a fence-based place says sin less a well-based place says love more a fence-based place says everything has to be fixed a well-based place says nothing has to be hidden let's say it another way next slide a fence-based place obsesses with distance a well-based place obsesses with direction a fence-based place says, how far are you from the center? And this creeps into our language sometimes. Like we talk, we're talking about a human being and we go, they're not far away from being like us. As if that would help them, right? It's a, a fence-based place says, okay, we have these 10 doctrines. We have then these three rituals and they're close. They're close to believing the doctrines. They're close to believing. Their, their distance from the center is, 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 is getting closer and closer and closer. A well-based place says, no, no, we're just gonna focus on the direction of their shoulders. And if they're facing the center, we're gonna facilitate and celebrate their next yes, knowing that God is moving them towards the center all along. Let me see if I can illustrate this with a true story. Um, I want you to pay attention to your heart when I tell this story. Pay attention to what it does at the end because it's very important because there's some truths that you just know deep inside and when someone says it, you're like, yes, that's what I was thinking. And I want you to, I want you to sort of pay attention to what's in here. So I, I got the chance to do 
a team meeting um, at a very well-based place. This was a huge church. It was a Tuesday night meeting. In order to be in the meeting, you had to be on team. There was roughly 400 people in the meeting. I'm talking about a church with a team. It's just huge. And one of the things that they did was they did a moment where they told God's stories to motivate people to keep going, right? And they, I loved it. They called it Minute to Win It, right? Because you had to, anybody could come up and grab the mic, but from the time you touched the mic, you had 60 seconds to tell your story. And they had a guy on a clock, and if it, if it beeped, they muted the mic. Everybody screaming and clapping. They were all into it. It kept people from rambling. It was brilliant, right? And so I had to go after this, and there were some brilliant stories, standing ovations, celebrations. It was an incredible atmosphere. And the guy that got up just before me, he was the last guy to tell his story. He got up, and he said, hello, everybody. I'm an atheist. I could tell he was serious. And I'm on the front row going, bro, you not, are you not taking the temperature of the room here? You're sort of killing a party, right? He said, I'm an atheist, but I'm a lonely atheist. And my friend told me that you didn't care whether I believed in God or not to let me belong to your thing. And so I tried it because I was lonely. So I showed up and sure enough, you're about the friendliest group of people I've ever met. None of you care whether I believe in God or not to let me be a part of things here. By the second week, one of you asked me to be a door greeter. You asked me to be on the hostess team. So I, I show up. He said, I said, yes. So every Sunday, I stand on the front door. I'm nice to people, and I show newcomers where the bathroom is. That's my job. He said, you are a church with an atheist door greeter. <laughs> and I'm like, now I'm loving this. And he said, my story is this. Because of your kindness, I'm going to step back tonight and reconsider God might be real. Yes. See what happens? Yep. Yep. A well-based place can do that. A fence-based place can't. A fence-based place, yeah, but has he checked off our doctrines? Has he went to our newcomer? Has he, has he done baptism class? Has he, wait, 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 what if he dies in a donkey exit? Wait, 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 hang on, hang on, wait. His shoulders are facing the center and we are meant to pay attention and cooperate and help him say, facilitate and celebrate his next yes. For an atheist to consider God might be real, that's a profound Yes, heading the right direction. Let's, let's put some more language around this. Next one. How about a legal transaction versus a way of life? A fence-based place says, I'm out, then I'm in. And uh, yeah, okay, a a amen. But, there, but it's bigger than that. What about a way of life? Jesus is not someone to believe in so we can go somewhere else. Jesus is a fundamental way of seeing the whole world. And that's two different things. Maybe another way to say that is the cross for us versus the cross in us. See, all of us celebrate the cross for us. There's a cross that only Jesus could bear. Yes, amen, fully embrace it. But there's also a cross Jesus called us to pick up. And oftentimes what we do is we embrace the cross that only he could bear and we neglect the cross that gives us a handful of splinters. Jesus, Jesus did bear the cross for us, but then he called us to have the cross in us. What does that mean? It means that the cross is not something that happened. The cross is something that happened that fundamentally shapes the way we see all other happenings after that. It informs how we handle conflict. It informs how we use power. It, it informs how we handle our enemies. It informs suffering. It informs grief. It informs humility. It informs what God is actually like, the cross for us or the cross in us. Let's say it this way, next slide. Forgiveness of sin 
versus restored to our original goodness. There's one element that says, yes, I'm forgiven, I'm forgiven, yes, and yes, and amen, but it doesn't stop there for a well-based place. A well-based place says, it's not just the forgiveness of sins. We wanna help you discover the best you can be, restored to how God originally intended it. Let's say it this way, someday, Sometimes we talk about salvation that way. Someday, someday the lion and the lamb. Someday no more pain. Someday no more sorrow. Someday no more crying. And yes, yes, amen. But salvation is also here, now, today. Jesus never presented salvation as do this once and then go somewhere else one day. It's hey, let let heaven invade your heart today. Why would you wait to go to heaven when you died? when you could have heaven established in you now so that when you do go to heaven, you don't get whiplash. It's like, oh yeah, I've been living like this for a while. Like, there's, there's this God for me versus God for the whole world. What we never wanna be is people who have fundamentally surrendered and consented to God's will for us while remaining disconnected for God's love for them, people not like us. You see this big time in the book of Jonah. Jonah surrendered to God's moral will for him but when he got to Nineveh, he still wanted God to destroy them because he thought they were evil. That we don't want to be surrendered to God's moral will for us and be disconnected with God's love for every body. Maybe we say it one more way. They're saved, but then there's whole. Salvation in Hebrew is a holistic experience. It's not just about the forgiveness of sins, although we embrace that. It's about God invading every area of our life, wrapping his creative power around our chaotic story in order to make a better narrative. The same thing he's been doing since creation. It seems to me that the enemy of a Christ-centered community is when we lose our thirst. If I was to say, if someone was to pin me down and say, okay, in one sentence, tell me what life church in Adelaide is trying to develop culturally. I would say, if I had to do it in one sentence, I would say life church in Adelaide wants to create a culture of thirst, a culture of desire, a culture of passion. When we lose our thirst, when we lose our journey, when we, when we quit facilitating and celebrating everybody's next yes, that's the problem. Again, so true, but a platitude without language. What does a thirsty culture look like? Let's put some language around that. Next slide. So a thirsty culture is four things. First, it is teachable. The root word for disciple in both Hebrew and Greek is student, one who is teachable. Whoever the smartest person in this room or online, whoever that person is about God, we haven't even scratched one one-thousandth of one percent of what God is. That, that, that if, we ever, if we ever shut down more conversations than we start, if we start with our flag in the ground, if we start with the, hey, if I haven't thought of it, it can't possibly be true, we lose our thirst. A thirsty culture's teachable. A thirsty culture's humble. What that means is, is that the way Jesus saw the world, the way Jesus saw God, the way Jesus applied scripture, is that the power is best expressed when submitted to the higher ethic of love. Liberty and love must submit one to another. And the way Jesus did it was his power always submitted to the higher moral ethic of love. In other words, the way Jesus taught us to see the world is to use our power to always prioritize the most vulnerable, not put them at risk, to always prioritize the poor, not hold them down, and to prioritize those weaker in conscience. That those three things, and that requires humility, that we never use our liberty at the expense of love ever, ever, ever. A thirsty culture is a teachable culture. It's a humble culture. 
It's a responsible culture. Responsibility. That, that, that in the Genesis story, even before sin entered the story, people got their meaning from how well they took responsibility for their world. And when sin entered the story, first thing they did was start blaming. To the level we blame is the level we disempower ourselves to change our life going forward. What kind of culture is life, church? It's a teachable culture. It's a humble culture. It's a responsible culture. And it's a passionate culture about the infinite possibilities for our world. That we are not simply obsessed with conversion, although we celebrate that. We are all about discipleship and practice and teaching people to see the world how Jesus saw the world, see God how Jesus saw God, and to apply scripture how Jesus applied scripture because we believe that that is the hope for the world. That fear of punishment nor expectation of reward is our primary motivator. Like if you need expectation of reward or fear of punishment to choose Jesus, that's less profound. Like if the only reason you're choosing Jesus is to not go to hell, that's sort of insulting. Can you imagine Jesus asking you one day, why'd you follow me? If your only answer is, well, I'd hate to go to hell when I died, that's pretty insulting. That'd be like your wife asking you, why'd you marry me? And your only answer is, well, the other chick was ugly, you know? <laughs> Option B was sort of terrible, so I chose you. Like, no, 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 we actually choose Jesus because we believe his way of seeing the world, his way of seeing God, and his way of applying scripture would make the world a better place. So may we be teachable, humble, responsible, and passionate about the infinite possibilities for our world. May we have heaven established in us so that when we do walk into heaven, we don't get whiplash, which leads me to Jesus. Every year, actually to this day, Jewish people do something that to us seems strange. Here's what they do. They choose to live outside for a week in tents. Sort of an odd custom, isn't it? Like really for us? Like if I said, hey, let's get closer to God by living outside in tents for a week. What would your, what would your question be? Why? Is the Crown Plaza not open? Are they full? Like, like I live outside in a tent. Now, now, this is a caricature, okay? This is very elementary, but it's, it'll get the point across. The reason they live outside in tents for a week is because they come from an ancestry that were homeless refugee slaves, and here's what they do. They make a confession. It's in Deuteronomy 26. My father was a wandering Aramean. In other words, my father was a homeless refugee slave. And if God had not interjected himself into my story, I would still be a homeless refugee slave. But because God has interjected himself into my story, I'm no longer a homeless refugee slave. I'm where I am. And here's why they do that. Even to this day, they know if they ever lose sight of where they'd be if God had not interjected himself into their story, we'll lose our responsibility for our role in the other person's story. On the seventh day of that feast, they have a closing ceremony. And in Jerusalem, it happens at the temple. It's in that context that I think Jesus says maybe the most radical thing he ever said, which I realize is a big call. But when you understand the context, he's standing on the temple steps of the most fence-based paradigm of thinking maybe ever. And he says this at the moment everybody was there. John chapter 7. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Of this he was speaking of the Spirit. Let's meditate on that for a second. Jesus is standing on the steps of the temple and every Jewish person within a walking distance was there. And he says, 
Anyone who's thirsty, come to me. In other words, in other words, the full presence of God that you've been told has been relegated to the inner room of the inner sanctum of the inner part of this building and it's only available to certain people once a year. We're changing the entire paradigm. The full presence of God is now available to everybody. Can you imagine? Like, and here's the criteria. Want it. Just be, just consent and want it. That's it. I'm going to reread that passage and I'm going to add two words. I admit I'm adding two words, but I'm adding it for effect. Pay attention to your heart. Uh, on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood in a loud voice, if it, let anybody who's thirsty come to me and drink. Anyone who believes in me, as the Spirit has said, uh, as the scripture said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Of this, he was speaking of the Spirit. Any questions? Imagine if Jesus would have had a Q&A at the foot of the, uh, the steps that day with all these fence-based thinkers. Um, uh, what if you're a eunuch? Yep, eunuchs are welcome too. But we have a verse, I know, but, but we're gonna fulfill scripture, not be right about that. What if you're an Amalekite? Yep, Malachites are welcome. Moabite? Yep, I'm 128th. Moabite. Sidonites? Yep, Sidonites are, Sidonites are welcome too if they want it. Yep, ab, ab, absolutely. We can go through all 613 fences or we can start seeing the world, seeing God and applying scripture different by fulfilling it. If you want it, not if you're worth it. But I have a rash no one knows about. I know, sir, I know. And you are welcome too. Please go get some cream and keep the rash to yourself. But when it comes to God, you're welcome. Now, great sermons are not meant to be agreed with, nor disagreed with. They're meant to be wrestled with. So let's wrestle uh, for some application. A few questions. Next slide. When's the last time I saw God do something that made me uncomfortable? Like, I, I knew it was God, but I didn't think God operated outside of certain parameters. One of my, I would say, if, if, if we're not seeing that, it's, it's not because God stopped, it's because we quit paying attention. One of my best friends is a guy named Richard Crisco. Richard Crisco was the youth pastor for something in the 90s called the Brownsville Revival. If you're not familiar with that, it was 10,000 people every night for seven years. They would show up at 6 a.m. for a meeting that started at 7 p.m. It would go to 3 a.m. and then they'd line up again at 6 a.m. Something real has to be happening for that kind of thing. And I, I was talking to him and I said, tell me a story from Brownsville that changed the way, the limits on God. He said, oh, easy. He said, there was one night. He said, we were praying. It was 2.30 in the morning. Remember, we'd been there since six and we had to be there the next morning at six. And, and the next, and the next. He said, I was so tired. He said, it was 2.30 more and we're still praying for people. We're seeing such amazing things though. You just keep going. He said, a group of young adults had snuck in a, a, after midnight and got up into the balcony. And they were doing these Saturday night live style skits. So they were, they were pretending to pray for one another and pretending to be touched by God. And then, and, 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 and then everybody's laughing and they were being hilarious with it, you know. And Richard told me, he said, I was so tired. I think I thought, God, send a bear to eat them. <laughs> he, he said, the next thing I knew, that he said, uh, they were down here. And I thought they'd brought their show to the front, and I was kind of tired of them. I said, I, he said, I wasn't even mad at them. I was just tired. He said, so I, I walked over to them to throw them out. And he said, I said something like, guys, seriously, love you, not mad at you, but you got to go, right? This is old. And, and he said, the leader of the group said, please, sir, help me. And Richard said, what happened to you? He said, well, I don't know if you noticed, but we were up there making fun of you. And Richard said, I noticed. And he said, well, the last skit we were going to do was with our friend Pete, Pete had been in a motorcycle accident and had some paralysis in his legs and was confined to a wheelchair. 
And he said, well, I was gonna pretend to pray for him. And what we'd done is we'd put strings on his knees, his ankles, his wrists, his elbows, and we'd, tie, we'd put, you know, poles. And when I pretended to pray for him, all of us were gonna move him around like a puppet, you know? It was gonna be hilarious. And Richard said, well, with friends like you, right? He said, what happened? He said, well, I pretended to pray for him. And he said, heat went through him and he stood up without our help. And he said, I realized I'm messing with something above my pay grade. Can you please help me? And Richard Crisco said, can God use an atheist to pray for another atheist with the intent of making fun and show him how much he loved him by healing him? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> and he said, me neither. But then I saw him do it. And who am I to argue with what I saw God do? Um, by the way, a, an entire theme of the book of Acts, Peter preaching to Gentiles and the Holy Spirit fills them. Remember, it surprises everybody, including Peter. And even the followers of Jesus are like, Peter, God doesn't fill Gentiles, right? And Peter's like, I know, I know. That's what I was taught my whole life too. But then I saw him do it. And who am I to argue with what God is up to? I, I, let's say it another way. Have I honored right, wrong, in, out, clean, and unclean over a hungry, thirsty paradigm? Am I blaming right now or am I taking responsibility? Uh, am I a teachable person? Or do I start with my flag in the ground? Let's say it this way. Am I a flexible person? Like if God saw fit to fill them with the Holy Spirit, who am I to argue? But the biggest question I want us to wrestle with for a long while is this. Are, are we building deeper wells or higher fences? Are we a well-based thinking? Here's the thing. Leaders at the highest level of church are totally on board with well-based thinking. But you can't lead a church faster than the slowest cog in the wheel. We, gotta, we have to repent of our fence-based thinking and embrace well-based thinking. What's that mean? It, mean? it means we obsess on who is thirsty, not who is worthy. We obsess on loving more, not sending less. We obsess on nothing has to be hidden instead of everything has to be fixed. We obsessed on direction in, instead of distance. We are here to facilitate and celebrate everybody's next yes. Whatever that yes might be, as long as their shoulders are facing the right direction. That we celebrate the cross for us, but we embrace and see the world as the cross in us. This is not just about us being right with God. It's about us connecting with God's love for the whole entire world. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. I want us to be quiet. I'm going to pray and the musicians are going to come back and I want us to have a, a moment of reflection and Lord, would you give us the courage to see things different? The irresistible urge to respond to what we see. If you're a follower of Jesus and you know that you've been guilty of a bit of fence-based thinking, I want you to feel zero shame about that. I, want, I don't even want you to feel guilty about that because those are short-term motivators. I just want us to turn around and see that there's a better way to think about life. Why don't you just right now underneath your breath, why don't you say, Lord, something like this. Lord Jesus, forgive me for my fence-based thinking. I want to embrace the way you saw the world, the way you saw God, and the way you applied scripture, and I want to be a well-based thinker. If you're here today or online, and you're like, man, you know what? The way Jesus saw the world, the way Jesus saw God, and the way Jesus applied scripture would make the world a better place and would make my life better. And not for any other reason than that. I, I, just, I just know there's something knocking at the door of my heart and I need to consent and participate 
with Jesus' version of my life story. And here's what that looks like. It looks like saying something like this. It's like, it's, if you need language, it's, Lord Jesus, I'm trusting your version of my life story instead of the one I've been writing on my own. I believe your version of my life story is better than the one I've been working on myself. That your way of seeing the world, your way of seeing God, and your way of applying scripture is the best way to live. And I want to surrender to that. If that's you, here in this room, or watching online, and you would like to respond, that the word is consent, that God is consenting in love, and you are mutually consenting back to surrender your life to a certain way of seeing the world, seeing God, and applying scripture. To understand that Jesus' version of our life is better than the one that we write on our own. And we trust him with our life. The, the, the theological word for that is salvation. For us, salvation is about trust. It's about trusting that Jesus' version of our life story is better than that, than one we've been writing on our own. And it's a way of seeing the world, seeing God, and applying scripture. And if you'd like to say yes to that, that Jesus' version of my life story is better than what I've been writing on my own. I'd like to pray for you. So if you would like to respond to that, no one's looking around, you have privacy, it's fine. I would just like to pray for you. Would you just slide your hand up in the air? And I'd love to pray for you right where you are. Just right now, if you just slide that up. I see that over there, that's really there, and there, and there. Great. And there, awesome. And there in the back, awesome. Takes a lot of bravery. Yeah, and there over there in the middle. Thank you. Yep. Anybody else? Yep, right there. Great. And right there, Great. And right there, great, great, yes, yes. I want you to know if, if you just put your hand in the air that we at Life Church we celebrate that yes. We celebrate your yes today towards Jesus. And we are here to facilitate and celebrate every yes you'll say in the future, heading towards everything God has for you. Now, if you need words to say, I'm gonna give you some words to say, but it's never the words, it's the response you've already made. But sometimes words help us. You could say something like this. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me. I trust that your version of my life is better than the one I've been writing on my own. And today I consent, I trust, and I surrender to that version of my life story. Amen. Would you look this way? Thanks so much for letting me be a part of your morning. Hope Jesus got bigger, the cross worked better, the resurrection is central, and scriptures got bigger, not smaller. I do have something very special set aside tonight. Trust me, it will change your life. Come on back. But in the meantime, let's always dig deeper wells instead of build higher fences. Grace and peace, everybody. Thanks for listening to this podcast. We trust that you're encouraged by this powerful message. You always have a place to call home here at Life and we invite you to join us for our Sunday services at our Adelaide campus. If you'd like to know more about Life, then visit our website at lifeadelaide.org or download the Life Adelaide app and stay connected.